Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, you're listening to Politics on the Couch, the podcast that puts its feet up and its thinking cap on to work out what goes wrong with politics and what goes on in the minds of politicians and voters. I'm Raphael Baer, and before we begin this episode, I am duty-bound to remind you that I'm also the author of a book, very much also about the absolute state of politics, how it got that way, and how not to let it get you down. It's called Politics, A Survivor's Guide, and it's in bookshops now. That's Politics, A Survivor's Guide. Now, obviously, I'm not alone in having found cause for concern about the state of liberal democracy in recent years, and reassuringly, greater minds than mine have also been at work analysing the causes of this malaise. One of them is my guest for this episode. He is Ben Ansell, Professor of Comparative Democratic Institutions at Nuffield College, Oxford. Professor Ansell is also the author of a recent book, Why Politics Fails the five traps of the modern world, and how to escape them. It's a work of tremendous breadth that elegantly arranges a lot of complex interlocking problems with the way democracy works, and does it with remarkable lucidity. The organising principle, as the title suggests, is five traps, or fallacies that interfere with the function of democracy. They relate to tensions at the very core of a democratic society. The problem of identifying the will of the people, the contradictions between individual freedoms and the ambition for equal outcomes, the problem of cultivating solidarity between strangers, the balance between theoretical liberties and the practical demands of keeping a society safe, the temptation of quick fixes to get rich that make us poor in the long run. Pretty much all of politics, in other words. It's a formidable work of analysis, and we couldn't possibly hope to cover it all in a single podcast. But we covered a lot. Enough, I hope, to whet appetites for the rest of the book. And mine. They complement each other nicely, I like to think. And that made for a very enjoyable conversation. For us, and I hope for you. I started by asking Professor Ansell about the potentially gloomy inflection in his book's title. To ask why politics fails, you have to assume it does. And I wanted to know whether he was motivated in writing the book by the need to persuade people that it doesn't always have to fail.
the title of the book uh, is a bit gloomy, but what I don't want people who buy the book to come out thinking is that politics is the source of all of our problems. What the book tries to do instead is to say, look, we are beset by a series of problems that are fundamentally political in nature uh, that prevent us from getting outcomes that we want. And those are the big five outcomes in the book that we'll talk about, like equality and solidarity. What I also want to argue in the book is that there's no way out of politics, so that we can't magically get to equality or to solidarity by avoiding politics, by assuming that everybody agrees or assuming everybody will behave well and that all we need is a strong leader will say the right thing or some kind of technological fix or the magic of the market, that we are stuck with politics, whether we like it or loathe it. And so is that depressing or not? Um, I think it is, it is probably realistic. Um, but I also think it's, it's hopeful in the sense that we don't have to wait for some leader to come along and say the right words. We don't have to wait for Elon Musk to develop some technological wizardry to get us out of this. The problems are in our own hands. We just have to be very aware of what those problems are, uh, and cognizant that, um, you know, we can't always trust ourselves, let alone everybody else. And so we need political solutions to get where we want to get. Right. That's very interesting, isn't it? Because I agree there is this ten I mean, I write about politics. And so obviously, I think it's important and I care about it. And I always forget that for lots of people, it is inherently a pejorative term because the assumption is uh, politics contains a kind of venality of motive and that politicians are somehow a distinct and less human or, or, or less humane subset of, of the species. And one of the things I enjoyed about the book is the historical suite that sort of maps uh, how that conception of politics as a thing that fails and what it is that it is failing to do, uh, which, as I understand it, is the mediation of competing and conflicting interests in such a way as large groups of people, whole societies, nations, continents can, in theory, resolve difficult problems. And one of the first assertions you make, I think it's the very first trap is the, that you describe is this, this one we've discussed on the podcast before about there, there being no such thing as the will of the people, because politics has the function of trying to negotiate between rival and competing wills of the people. I think there are many, many people in the country who hate our politicians. And it's an easy jump from there to say that they hate politics as well, because our politicians are our representatives when we make major political decisions. But the thing is, the differences that we have between each of us are also politics. So when you and I disagree in our family about where we want to go to the restaurant, we have to make some kind of decision. And when our neighbours and I get in a fight about the size of hedges or whether front lawns are properly mowed, that's also a set of decisions that we collectively have to make. And I live in Oxford where low traffic neighbourhoods are the major theme of nextdoor.com uh, with people getting extremely angry about their ability to get up and down Ifley Road. That's politics too. And most of that is happening without any representative politicians getting involved at any point. So politics is all around us and it pervades everything we do because we all fundamentally disagree on what we want or how we're going to get there. Uh, so we might agree on some very broader goals, and the book talks about those broader goals, like equality and solidarity, but it's the nuances of how we're going to get there and what type of equality or what type of solidarity that we want. That's where we all fundamentally disagree. Now, I'm glad you um, mentioned solidarity there, because that's exactly where I want to sort of zero in first, precisely because you were just describing, for example, the problem of 
whether inside a family unit you can agree on what to have for dinner or whether in a town the size of Oxford uh, you need to understand that there is some kind of collective interest between the people who want to have quiet suburban streets and the people who need to drive down those streets to get to work and uh, you know, ultimately mediating between those rival interests requires some understanding that it's not them and us it's not the you know, pedestrians versus the white van drivers uh you know it, they are us we are all one us uh, and that to me that is uh, probably uh, the essence of the solidarity proposition and the solidarity trap that you describe in your book to me feels like the one that in a sense contains all the others um because it is precisely and maybe i'm wrong about this but i get the impression that you're arguing that solidarity is at its core that technique of turning a lot of competing individual interests into a project for collective action or rather solidarity is the essential ingredient for that part of politics is that fair no i think that's that's a great way of putting it we only care about solidarity when we need it ourselves which, which gets to the core of this solidarity is about doing things for the collective generally speaking getting other people to pay out in some way for you when you need their help but of course at some point you're going to be the person providing solidarity and although most of us would love to think that um when we're in tough times other people will come and help us we all seem strangely reluctant to help people out uh, when we don't need to or we find a series of excuses about why although i'd like the nhs to be supported I also think that the UK has the highest tax rates since the Second World War, and that's a problem, so we need to reduce taxes. Clearly, we can reduce taxes and increase NHS spending, but we'd have to cut something else as well. So all of the times we're facing these twin motivations, uh, and those motivations are especially stark when we're not directly affected at the moment uh, by what the solidarity is aimed at. So in the chapter, I spend a lot of time uh, talking about how solidarity works over time. So I might not need solidarity today. So present me might be doing really well but future me might be in trouble and the difficulty that all of us face individually and we face collectively as a society is how to somehow bring together the needs of future us and present us when present us can get along quite nicely without the help and in fact might not need it for a long time if ever yeah i'm glad you mentioned the you mentioned the optimism bias in the book and we actually did an, an episode on that because that certainly crystallized for me this problem as you say that it's not just a solidarity of that I might be expected to feel with a stranger on the other side of town or on the other end of the country who I don't know and therefore I don't feel I necessarily have a kind of common enterprise with. But even as you say, the solidarity I need to show with aged, decrepit me in 40 years time for which stake I should pay a higher national insurance contribution uh, or whatever it is. And it seems to me that there are sort of intersecting sort of different planes of, of problem or obstructions to solidarity that you have to navigate simultaneously, which is, as you say, there's a, a sort of a time axis. There's a scale axis, which is, you know, if it's my neighbour, I'll happily lend them a fiver and expect to get it back. If it's a complete stranger in, an, you know, in another country or in another county, uh, I might not feel we've got in common. There's also, and you're very upfront about this in the book, problems of culture, that it's easier for me to feel an intuitive sense of political solidarity with people like me. I mean, in the, the just an example of the council ward where I live, I think voted about 98% remain. <laughs> and so th th that's before you even get into questions of, of race and other things that um, might interfere. So it seems to me that you know, maybe we should sort of distinguish some of these 
obstacles to solidarity and which ones do you think which ones do you feel are, are the most acute where when it comes to trying to organize a political project in the book i speak about the difficulty of having solidarity across time so that's making sure that present me looks out for future me and that applies to both us and to politicians as well and then solidarity across people when we are trying to provide solidarity to people who don't look like us or don't live near us or who we don't trust in some fashion or another. I think both of these problems are really endemic to providing even things like the National Health Service. So think, for example, about health tourism. That is a phrase that I'm not sure really actually exists in real life in any great magnitude, but certainly motivated lots of concerns about the NHS being free at the point of use for first tourists and then for immigrants. So in both of those cases, making the NHS not free at the point of use unless you either had insurance for tourists or you paid the NHS immigration charge for immigrants meant contracting the group of people who we feel we owe solidarity to in a way that turned out to be very politically successful for the party introducing it. But of course, ultimately means that immigrants aren't part of the same cauldron of solidarity that, that we set up for ourselves. So those kinds of problems about who's deserving of our solidarity are, are endemic to solving these political issues. In the book, I open that solidarity chapter by talking about Obamacare, the Affordable Health Care Act in the United States. And there you see both problems really, really sharply. So I think we're all aware that there are a series of what you could euphemistically call ethnic tensions in the United States, largely based around the white majority being less than fully willing to accept a large a welfare state along the sort of magnitude of the European model, in part because of racial issues, right? So there's lots and lots of academic research that shows that ethnocentric whites, that are those white people in America who more strongly identify with their own ethnicity, tend to support lower social spending in general. Even if that social spending isn't targeted at particular people, it's largely thought of as, well, welfare goes to, to black people, and so we don't want to pay for it. It's the sort of reasoning that goes on in the ethnocentric mind. And so when you look at the Affordable Care Act and the places where the expansion of Medicaid, which is the, the program for American public health for poorer people, that could be decided by the states. And you'll see that it's all across the states in the south that have a history of a very high racial tension that no expansion ever happened. So America's racial politics became an important part of why the Affordable Care Act didn't spread out uniformly. And then we had this problem across time, which was the famous mandate. So Americans traditionally just bought private insurance. And so if you didn't buy private insurance, you didn't have insurance. And the Affordable Care Act required you to purchase health insurance. There was a mandate when you filed your taxes. If you didn't have health insurance, you had to pay a fine to the government. Ultimately, the Supreme Court struck that down, but they struck it down because there was an argument where people said, well, I don't need health insurance today, so why should I pay for it? And people weren't able to connect the present them to the future them who might need health insurance. So the, the whole point of the mandate was to try and resolve that problem, but it was still highly politically contentious. And ultimately, that was another part of the Affordable Care Act that failed to work. On that point, specifically about healthcare and, going, and back in the, in the UK, in the NHS, interested in the, the historical genesis of this, because you know, the NHS famously introduced in the UK by the post-war government, the Attlee government. And there is an argument that... There was a particular moment in the late 1940s, early 1950s, where a number of forces came together, one of which was the 
overwhelming moral imperative of not doing something like the Second World War again. And, and, and a sort of slight equalisation that had happened in society. Everyone had fought for a very clear, in Western societies, Western democracies, had been galvanised around a particular political project, which was saving their society from evil, for want of a better word, which gave permission for and set the economic circumstances for a quite egalitarian model. And that essentially we've been trading on that on and off or degrading and depleting that store of solidarity more or less since the late 1940s. And it's, and now we've just sort of run out of it. Um, And we, we're the, many of the problems we have in politics now are that was just simply long enough ago. And the things you were just describing in terms of people suspecting the mandate not being valid enough or people feeling, well, I've got my bit, I've paid for my private insurance. Why should I give money so that some poor person who I don't know should get free healthcare? This is now the sort of, we've, we've degraded that store of moral and political capital for solidarity. Is that, that's, that's just a very pessimistic account, but is there any truth to that sort of narrative arc? There's a huge amount of truth to the fact that the end of the Second World War led to a massive increase in the role of the state across most industrialized countries. And the story that you tell, which is one where there is a moment of national solidarity caused by the war effort, caused by the heightening of a, we're in this together, a heightening of the nation above more parochial or religious regional divides in the UK definitely facilitates the ability to create something that everybody is part of. It's also easier to do at that time because healthcare is much cheaper than it is today, right? So the technologies, the pharmaceuticals are are just much less expensive. So part of the problems we have today is that both healthcare has become more expensive and our population has become a lot older and therefore higher demand for healthcare. What I really want to emphasize here is the fundamental importance with solidarity of widening the scope that people agree is the correct envelope of solidarity to which we all belong. And things that emphasize the nation might seem to people from the kind of liberal sphere to be potentially undermining of solidarity, right? Because it feels nationalist. And it probably is undermining of international solidarity. But arguably, these national moments when when nationalism and patriotism was important were precisely the reasons we got things like the National Healthcare Service to begin with. So there's a bit of an uneasy balance there. Yeah, that's a very, sorry to interrupt, but that's a very important tension, isn't it, in terms of whether you're defining your national community in liberal progressive inclusive civic terms as in we all you know we can all belong to this and the flag can belong to everyone or you decide that it's got an ethnic component there's a, and i wonder i remember i think it was sort of around the 1990s that became an argument really started to get purchase that the reason the post-war more social democratic consensus had started to break down was actually that just mass migration was making it harder. And I remember, I think it was David Goodhart uh, really introduced that a lot and got a, and he sort of said he'd come originally from the liberal left, but a lot of people said he basically betrayed that background because this was a kind of a discreetly or even explicitly racist way of framing the problem. But he did, it did seem to me that he at least, you know, highlighted something that has a certain amount of cultural purchase in a lot of people's minds, which is if you have lots of migration, maybe it is harder to do social democratic politics. So I think this is where the difference between being a political scientist and a political commentator becomes really, really sharp, right? Because I I think there is a general consensus in the academic 
study of the welfare state development and attitudes towards the welfare state, that ethnic diversity ends up playing some kind of a negative role. It either means that in more diverse societies, or if you prompt people to think about diversity more, you get less support for the welfare state. And there's a sort of broader argument that countries that are more ethnically diverse, like the United States or Brazil and so forth, tend to have smaller welfare state. Look, there are a lot of things that go into making you have a large or small welfare state, but it's certainly the case that the ethnically homogenous countries of Scandinavia and Europe have very large welfare states, right? So it's understandable that people would think that. I think where Goodhart probably got himself in more trouble was sort of advocating that as not only uh, a pattern that we see, but as a really understandable pattern that we need to think about more. And I think that does make liberals feel very uncomfortable. While I'm not sure how much of it is effective political rhetoric and how much of it is reality, I think the Scottish National Party's civic nationalism way that they describe what they do, which sort of supersedes ethnicity and divides and is about being in this country is what makes you Scottish and we'll go in together. I think that's an effective way of increasing support for the welfare state. In the book, I talk about a quite different example where some political scientists did a study in India where they asked people to contribute money to a disaster in a Muslim village. And they looked at the responses of, of Hindus and of Muslims to the fact that the money was not going to be given solidaristically, it was going to be given to, to a particular village. And then they put up an image of, for some people, they put up an image of the Indian flag at the top. In fact, it was a map of India colored in the Indian flag. And they found that those Hindus who saw that image became much more likely to want to support strictly the Muslims who were also Indian, who'd been affected by this, by this disaster in the survey. So I do think rallying around the flag can be good from a liberal perspective, but it does create a tension for liberals, right? Because liberals tend to think in universalistic terms, not in national terms. That's very interesting. And uh, it makes me wonder gen more generally how important sort of exhortation is uh, as, as the motivating factor, by which I mean, d does politics ultimately have to express a collective interest in something that isn't just your material well-being to animate solidarity? So you could say, make a case of solidarity saying, look, if you have a more equal society and everyone pays in, then when you get hit by a bus, the hospital is going to look after you. So your immediate self-interest is served by this. Or if you get made unemployed, you'll get unemployment benefit. Therefore, you'll have money when you need it. That's a very material one. Maybe that's not enough. And actually, the, the, the power of nationalism, or indeed in its time, communism, is it's saying it's offering a kind of quasi-religious destination. You, you will be served by this higher cause. And is that a necessary ingredient in solidarity? Yeah, I think so. I think the problem with the purely material way of solving solidarity is that until you've been hit by the bus, you've not been hit by the bus. And you don't think you're going to be, you think you might be hit by a bus, but you don't know for sure. I talk in my book about we don't have the book of our own lives, right? We don't know what's going to happen next. If we did, then we'd know sort of exactly how much solidarity we needed across our life. But because we don't, and because we're prone to thinking that bad things won't happen, talking about, look, if you got into trouble, you would need this is not always convincing to people, right? So we do we do buy insurance for lots of things, but some things aren't insurable anyway. So unemployment is not something that you can insure against privately, not least because the types of people who buy the insurance are probably the types of people who would become unemployed, so no one's going to offer it. So if on the material side, you always face the solidarity trap, you have to find some other way of getting around it. In the book, the two big types of solutions are you either design political institutions that essentially 
guide everybody's expectations, set all the laws and principles, and you abide by them until you get rid of the institution. In some ways, that's what we've got with the NHS, right? It was formed at this moment where a big political bargain was struck. The institution itself is hard to change. It has lots of people with vested interests in it, and it lasts for decades and decades. But know that the institution may feel like, less like it fits us today or it fits us under these new conditions than it did in 1945. And that's true with every type of institution we construct. It's, it's a fossil. Right? So you build it at a moment where it makes sense. But after that, it's a kind of fossilized promise that you made earlier on. And that fossil, ultimately, it's the remains of a deal that died a long time ago, and it might or might not fit us well. And, and so that's why the NHS is probably in more trouble today than it, than it was in the past, just because of longevity. Sorry, I was going to say there's a paradox there, isn't there? Which is that the interests of being able, being able to function as a democratic society requires this element of, of solidarity that allows you to see beyond your own self-interest. The expression of that is institutions with longevity to sort of make to entrench decision making and processes that you want for the long term that goes beyond the electoral cycle and then by definition for those institutions to succeed they have to sort of be immune to the vagaries of democracy like the 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 power of the nhs is that no one's going into an election saying oh sod it let's scrap the nhs yeah i mean this is where i think a lot of the contemporary debates about populism or not populism are missing the point which is that all of us all the time are living with the deals that our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents struck. Now, those deals might not suit us today, but they've also been playing a really important role for all of our lives in making sure that we all have mutual expectations about what each other are going to do and what the contours of political debate are and so forth. Obviously, we've seen this over the last few years in this country, a lot of norms of parliamentary behaviour and broader political behaviour have been really upset through the Brexit process. And that's largely because once you get rid of the previous institutions, it's not really clear who should do what when. Can you pro parliament? Should you throw out people from your party who didn't vote the right way and so forth? So we, we need to be really careful not to assume that just because something doesn't work perfectly today, that the absence of it or a new version of it will be better, particularly if we don't currently agree on what we want. If we had a new war, if we created a new healthcare system, then I might expect it would have more longevity. If we do one when we all disagree, it's unlikely that that political bargain that we strike right now is going to last very long. You touched there on my my single greatest fear about the state we are in in politics now is that there are a whole bunch of lessons about the institutional framework that came into being after 1945 that we're going to have to relearn the hard way, and the hard way can get can get pretty dark and and. What's interesting in relation to what you've just described is that the the theory is that you would have a, a middle way which allows you to say, well, let us reform this institution. Let's reform the NHS or the way we do social care because suddenly we've got lots of old boomers who are, you know, are, are costing us a lot of money and the young workforce, you know, can't pay for them or doesn't want to. But the the very concept of reform seems to get discredited because it's in that sort of slow incremental sort of process that of politics that doesn't satisfy people's immediate demands for change. Yeah, I mean, people don't win elections by shouting evolution, not revolution. Even the Conservative Party, right, has stopped trying to use that kind of line to win an election. And we, we might see something different with a Sunak-led campaign. But I think that's where currently people think Keir Starmer is going to struggle, that it looks more like he has a kind of evolutionary rather than revolutionary approach. And people say, well, how are you going to win an election on that? Where's the big idea? Where's the big change? So I think there's 
a basic tension that to win elections, it feels like you need an exciting new story. But to make our policies work, you probably don't want to rip up all the institutions that you have and hope that you can create new ones out of the blue that reflect exactly the current political temperature and climate that you're in today, which after all might change in five years time as well, as we've seen in trying to deal with Brexit and trying to deal with the public mood shifting. Now we're stuck with a set of decisions that were made in 2019 that might not feel optimal even for 2022. Now, this brings us to something that has come up quite a lot on the podcast and relates to something you said at the very beginning, I think, whether or not it's safe to rely on personality and character uh, as a as a device for navigating through this. Because I think a lot of when I put exactly that Keir Starmer problem uh, to a lot of people on the centre left, the liberal left, where they recognise that actually sort of just crying you know, even if you wanted a bolshevik solution you wouldn't be you wouldn't win an election promising one anyway and i don't think you should want one as it were the solution is if you had someone who could just sell nice steady as she goes reformist technocratic politics but with the personality of barack obama then that's win-win but in the absence of a barack obama then what are you going to do you've got to, got to try and make it work with with her starmer instead i felt you didn't necessarily want to confront in the book maybe didn't want to but in the book there's less about the function of just the magnetic personality in getting through some of these problems yeah and in in part that's because broadly speaking the argument of the book is look these trade-offs are pretty fundamental every politician's going to face them regardless and the book is of course not about how to win elections but it's about the problems that we have that that said I think rhetoric is rhetorical skill and charisma are hugely important in politics. And I do talk a little bit about it in the book, which I'll come to in a second. But I think I would I would want to caution people in thinking that charisma and populism are the same thing. I think there are plenty of examples of highly charismatic fundamentally evolutionary style politicians or incrementalists. Barack Obama, who you just mentioned, is the best example of that, right? So there's very little in Obama's political program that is revolutionary, unless you're an American who thinks the Affordable Care Act is revolutionary, which clearly some Americans did, but it's a pretty milquetoast policy otherwise. I think that I think one could make a good argument that Tony Blair was was the same kind of politician. I think there was quite a lot of change at the beginning of the Blair era, but I think it was it was not was not revolutionary except for some of the sort of institutional changes to to regional governance and the House of Lords and so on. So what I think is important, I talk about briefly in the book in the in the democracy chapter, is the ability to reframe the axis of political debate so you can change who the current winners and losers are. So this is called rather clunkily heresthetics by the political political scientist, political thinker, William Riker. And Riker, Riker was really obsessed with Abraham Lincoln and how Abraham Lincoln was able to take the Republican Party in the United States that had barely won an election for 60 years and make them the dominant party of late 19th century and early 20th century American politics. And the way that he was able to do that was by reframing American political debate around the issue of slavery. And in doing so, that 
split the Democratic Party in half because the Northern Democrats opposed slavery and the Southern Democrats supported it, but it kept the Republicans whole. And so shifting from what had previously been a debate largely about sort of free trade and agriculture and so on, where the Republicans were always on the wrong side of it, to a debate about slavery, shifted all of the debate, made the Republicans win, and also, by the way, led to Lincoln being assassinated and a civil war and all these other examples. I think Brexit plays that role in the United Kingdom. It's exactly, I was about to say exactly that. It's very interesting how, I mean, we, I mean, we are both old enough to remember sort of in the mid nineties, how Euroscepticism was a crankish marginal creed that demonstrated the Conservative Party's crusty obsolescence in cultural political debates. Uh, and then it became literally the defining policy of the UK in the world. <laughs> it actually in a remarkably short period of time. Yeah, absolutely. What happened is that Brexit moved from the golf club to the football club. So something that was associated with being on the far right of the existing spectrum, which was a kind of class politics dimension. And so the people who support it, who were strong Eurosceptics, also so happened to be high earners who lived in the leafy shires and worked in the city, suddenly was, was shifted to the Red Wall or to areas that had not traditionally been associated with thinking that Euroscepticism was an important part of their politics, right? They might have been naturally Eurosceptic. Clearly, the skill of Boris Johnson and his supporters was to find a kind of latent dimension where people did care about Euroscepticism and make that really salient for them. And when they'd done that, it suddenly became clear that they'd drawn a line down the middle of the country and they had the bigger half. Some of that is just our old friend's immigration debate. Uh, and I don't necessarily want to go back down that rabbit hole, you know, in terms of you know, what that expressed about people's anxieties about globalization or whatever cultural and social grievances they might have had. The other one, which is connected to that, was, is this question of the relationship between, in quotes, the people and the elites. And I'm interested that you, you mentioned class politics, which isn't something we've discussed yet, you know, which in the context of solidarity, you know, the, the old left model of solidarity automatically assumes a, a, a class element and has a lot of sort of Marxist thinking either explicitly or implicitly in it. And I was wondering to what extent you feel that whole idiom, that whole way of look, projecting who should have solidarity with whom and who's the in-group and who's the out-group is now just in the third decade of the 21st century simply superseded by other framings. Well, so I think it's certainly clear that support for the Labour Party is no longer is no longer based on on traditional working class supporters or working class areas. The I did a ran a couple of surveys last year, and the Labour Party uh, core Labour voters have the highest proportion of graduates of all political groups of the main parties. And so, thinking about conservatives or non-voters who are thinking of conservative Labour, loyal Labour voters are sixty percent graduates, right? So that's that's just a world of difference to the one in which the NHS was created. That doesn't need to undermine the British model of the welfare state. But I think what it does is it undermines the British way of thinking about the politics of the welfare state. So we've been used broadly to thinking about it as class politics. The Conservative Party made their peace with the NHS, but it was never their preferred model. If you look at continental Europe, the way that they structure their welfare systems, which I talk a great deal about in the book, in the solidarity section, it's by basically buying in the middle class and the upper middle class and giving them more stuff. This is especially true with things like unemployment insurance. So in the UK, we have this sort of flat rate unemployment insurance. It's very ungenerous. We have a highly progressive tax code. 
by European standards, right, where low earners barely pay, well, they don't pay any tax at all until £12,500, and then tax tax rates amp up quite quite fast on, on richer people. In Europe, they have less progressive taxation on the whole. So in other words, poorer people pay more and they have very high VAT. And on top of that, wealthier people get better unemployment insurance. They sometimes get better healthcare in some countries too. They get better pensions. But those welfare systems are much more robust. And to the British mind, that feels that feels odd, right? How How is it possible that you can end up having the big supporters of the welfare state in these countries being middle class and upper middle class people? But it's because those systems are designed to keep those people in. Whereas in the UK, we have this sort of secondary private healthcare, education, and so forth sector that essentially provides a kind of second tier of choice to, to wealthy people. And we've not brought them into the welfare state as core supporters of it in the way that, say, the Scandinavians or the Germans have. So is it necessary to an extent for the state to be quite monopolistic in the provision of certain public goods to sort of crowd out that private element in order to cultivate the kind of solidarity that enables you to have the politics of of bringing people together or, you know over a long term enterprise I and mean, that's that yeah. i find that sort of the social democrat in me finds that quite appealing but therefore i feel i need to check the bias there in case actually i want that to be true and it isn't well i mean it, the social democrat in you might find it appealing to to crowd out alternative options but if the way you get that is by giving better stuff to wealthier people which is basically the scandinavian and german model then i think that can be tricky for people who are naturally social democratic too because that doesn't feel very social democratic it is so this is called the paradox of redistribution by porter corpian and joachim palmer that uh, you get larger welfare states in and more of politically stable welfare states in places that have welfare states that look a little bit regressive. And it's because the political logic is the thing that keeps it alive. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Okay, I'm going to do a hand, bit of a handbrake turn here because it's what's interesting also and struck me as something I hadn't necessarily seen before and I encountered the data in your book. We're also in those countries talking about politics with more proportional electoral systems, which also seems to correlate to um, essentially a more effective egalitarian politics. And it's, it wasn't it's, before I read your book to me initially obvious that those two things would be connected. And maybe they're not. Maybe there's not a causal link there. But I, I think you imply that because of the the requirement for trade-offs through 
coalition politics and the different ways that the demands of different groups are represented in those parliaments, there is a connection. I, I, I think broadly the consensus across the social sciences and lots of people have, have studied this issue in, in both political science, sociology and economics over the, the last 20 years is that we can't know for sure unless we're constantly randomly randomly introducing electoral systems across countries, and that's not something I as a social scientist would recommend we did, even though I would get great data out of it. But we think that the way that these systems operate tends to lead to more long-term stable policymaking. And the argument is essentially that everybody in a coalition is replaceable, and that means everybody could be in the coalition. So I think I give the example in the book of the Dutch electoral system. I wonder if I can find it here. Yeah, so we've had Mark Rutte running the Dutch government for over a decade now, but he's had four separate cabinets. And so he's a member of the VVD party, but his first cabinet's with the Christian Democrats and sort of kept in power by Gert Wilders' PVV, the far right. The second one is just with the Dutch Social Democrats. And the third and fourth are with the Christian Democrats, D66, who are a kind of liberal hipster party, and the religious party called the Christian Union. Right? So everybody in Dutch politics, almost everybody, has had a turn while Mark Rutte has been in power. And that leads to a very different type of policymaking than you're going to get in a two-party system where there's a bit of a scorched earth philosophy, right? You come in, you get rid of all the stuff that the last guys did that you didn't like, you introduce all of your own policies, and then 5, 10, 15 years later, the reverse happens. Instead, you end up with Mark Rutte forever in the Netherlands, which, which might be a bad thing, but all the other parties get to implement at some point their preferences, not least because if, if one on the outside wants something different, they can try and dislodge a party currently in the coalition. I suppose, well, two things uh, in response to that. One, I imagine quite a lot of people you know, would recoil at the idea that including the far right as sort of normalising and legitimising the far right as part of your political process doesn't necessarily sound like a great advertisement for proportional representation. Uh, and sorry, and, yeah, well, no, carry on. Pick that up and then I'll come to the other one. No, I was going to say that that has always been the critique of, of proportional representation. And it was so much more convincing until the far right infiltrated the Republican Party and parts of the Conservative Party. But it turns out that in two party systems, those parties are essentially broad churches of lots of smaller factions that look a lot like the parties in the Netherlands that just happen to be their own party. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And that, that for me was was one of the big lessons of the last four or five years in British politics is that actually we have coalition politics. We just smuggle it in under the sort of carapace of the two party system, which means it's actually uh, less fair, less explicit. And it means that you get a situation where Liz Truss can be prime minister because actually it's decided within the weird coalition of the Tory party rather than by uh, a more uh, democratic process. The other interesting thought in relation to endless coalition politics, uh, a, a critique, I suppose, that might be leveled, is that you exacerbate this sense, and I think you, you feel this very strongly in German politics, uh, that there is a multi-technocratic centre that is run by the elites, and you're therefore always simmering away that t 10 to 30, maybe more percent of people who just think, the solution here is to scrap the whole lot of them and you incubate a much more radical view of what politics has to be because it's the same monopolizing elites that just stitch everything up for themselves. So I absolutely think that is that is the big risk because in a PR system, a party representing the sort of middle of the political spectrum is always going to be there. Right? It's very hard to have a coalition of the extremes. 
because they generally hate one another and, and you very, very rarely see it. Although you do get these weird cases like the truth, the cases of sort of farmers' parties supporting social democratic parties on occasion. And that's happened in New Zealand, in fact. With with that said, the bad news is that you always have a party in the middle there because they're always going to be able to find a coalition and therefore they'll always be there and there will always be some kind of elite group. But the good news is that you always have somebody from the middle there sort of moderating the whole thing down. And those are flip sides of the same coin, right? So you either end up with, with polarization where... Party, where the middle basically gets split between two parties, which means that the right are going to dominate the Conservatives and the left potentially the Labour Party, with moderates in both parties not only struggling to control, but actually almost always being in the swing seats that flip back and forth, and therefore it being harder for any of those people to run the party in the long run. So that's the extreme that we're in. Or you end up with this problem of a perpetual, a perpetual quasi-elite, what Peter Mayer called the cartel party. Yeah, I wonder if this brings us... Um, to you know, back to the, your first trap, the the democracy trap that I mean, and I'm um, calls to mind. I'm thinking we had Helen Thompson on the podcast a while ago, and I think it was there that we talked about this constant tension between uh, you know, sort of a, or a, a cycle between aristocratic excess and democratic excess, where you either you're you're having to basically say, you know, okay, at some point there is a cognitive elite which. You know, rightly or wrongly presumes that it's higher skills, better education, etc., gives it better judgment about what to do. But by definition, that is less democratic than just giving a lot of people what they want, even if what they want is a stupid idea. And I don't, that seems to me to be something you're just constantly having to navigate and tack between. Yeah, I, I think Helen is Helen is, is is pretty right on that in democratic politics. And American professor Dan Slater calls this democratic careening for countries that are democratizing they tend to careen between having these people like Thaksin Shinawatra in Thailand these sort of mega populist leaders who command a lot of support from the public in a in a country that's not fully democratic yet and then veering back to the old elite which in Thailand is sort of the, the people who support the royals this kind of existing oligarchy so you go back and forth so I think that's really general to the political process everywhere and that again is because we all disagree on things and and different people will have different views about what the best way of of making policy is over the long run and, and the merits of a 51 percent uh making the rules type of majoritarianism right so helen helen's form of of sort of democracy there it, it might be viewed as more democratically legitimate because 51% of the people is 51% and it's more than 49 But I think we all know the problems of loser's consent, which has been a major issue for us in the UK over the last five or six years. And you can view it two ways. Either the loser should have given their consent, right? The Remainers should have realised they'd lost and backed Brexit. Or alternatively, the Brexiteers didn't seek the loser's consent and they went too hard. So you know, it's, it's hard to know whether even that form of democracy is going to be a particularly long-run, stable, effective form of democracy if losers don't consent, as they often do. And this also brings us neatly to the Condorcet paradox, uh, which I want to talk about briefly as a way station to trying to think of some solutions, because I can, although he feels not saying anything, I can hear his appetite for optimistic and practical solutions to these problems fizzing away um, in the background. Um, and the, why don't we, so, so Condorcet, French mathematician, revolutionary, uh, you'll probably be able to explain it better than me, but makes this point that 
the problem with any kind of majoritarian system is you can have a situation where if there are three propositions, then uh, a bunch of people can prefer A to B, B to C, but C to A. uh, And therefore, there's no way actually of resolving which one you want, A, B or C, that is going to have the full consent of a majority. Is that crudely speaking right? Yeah, that that is a great description of, of, of Condorcet. And and the sort of more complicated version of this, Ken Arrow won the Nobel Prize for, it's called Arrow's Impossibility Theorem. So it's not possible, Arrow argued, to have a democratic system where you let everybody vote freely on things, nobody gets to be the dictator, and that you don't end up with this problem where A beats B, B beats C, C beats A. And if, if you think that that doesn't happen, just look at sports teams, right? So Italy can get beaten by England, England can get beaten by Hungary, and Italy could beat Hungary and we cycle around. Lots of things don't order nicely. Or the uh, you use the example of the indicative votes in Parliament uh, on Brexit. Well, no, let's not go down there because we'll all just start to, once we start talking about what happened with Brexit in 2018 and 19, then we'll never stop. No, and, and you, you spoke about this with Meg Russell, but and you spoke about this then. The core thing to to think about Brexit from a Condorcet perspective, and, and I'll be quick on it, is we had a, a simple vote over two things. And with two outcomes, there's no problem with majority voting at all, right? You either win or you lose. The problem is if there are three ways of doing something, then all bets are off. And there are more, there's more than one way of doing Brexit. So if even if we're just down to hard Brexit, soft Brexit remain, we're in a world where groups of people can have different preference orders over those three events and we can end up spiraling around. This is why I liked the idea of a budget of votes that, that you cited. Yeah. This, this appealed to yeah. me in a very nerdy way. The quad- Quadratic voting yeah. approach. Yeah, I mean, this is this is neat. Like normally, I'm fairly skeptical skeptical of economists' solutions to political problems, but I'm not I'm not skeptical of this Posner and Wild book, Radical Markets. It's a really interesting book. The quadratic voting idea is that you can essentially get more votes for something, but you have to pay more. So if you like, you get a tally of votes you could spend. And if you really like something, more of your votes have to go to support it. And the quadratic part comes because it's like a squared term. The more you like something, the ever more you have to pay to get it. So just to, so to clarify this in my head as much as anything else, let's say the proposition is, uh, you know, higher health spending yeah. or, you know, uh, and as opposed to, and someone else wants higher military spending then I have a big heap of tokens uh, and you know, in my sort of referendum on or through my app, whatever that says, what, which policy do you want? I could, the first time I'm going to say, right, well, I'll put two tokens on health spending. But if I really want health spending and I really think that's more important than military spending, then I can add another token, but that one's going to cost me another vote but that's going to cost me four exactly and if i really want to heap up no then i have to then that's going to be 16 yeah well you keep on nine or 16 or whatever yeah depending on how you do it going up depending what what the algorithm is but yes yeah and uh, that's exactly right right so it allows you to express the intensity of your preference and you're only going to spend lots and lots of tokens if you really 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 care so i think that does resolve some problems where people feel that they can't be heard. They really want something, but they just have an up-down vote. I think there's one really obvious problem with it, which is that the only people who are going to want to spend lots and lots of tokens on things are extremists. And so you might end up in a world where moderates end up spending their one or two tokens for their kind of moderate view on something. The extremists all pack in and spend all of their tokens. They're not going to get a vote on 
education spending or defence spending or anything else. They're just going to vote on abortion. Or they're just going to vote on healthcare spending. They whack everything in there and suddenly all of our politics goes to the extreme. So you need a, a, a sort of the quadratic voting equivalent of the 5% threshold that you get in proportional representation in Parliament. So say up to a certain point, exactly the people who just heap all their chips on bring back capital punishment simply their vote they they they, at some point they maxed out it's like in financial markets a bell rings it's like okay stop voting now that's just stupid yeah quadratic voting and capital punishment we would definitely we would definitely be hanging people again in a year if we had quadratic voting to capital punishment with the country yeah and i think it's look it's a really interesting idea It, it solves some of the problems we have but it potentially creates other problems with extremists or people who have enough resources to be able to not care about most things and just care about one thing, which also tends to be wealthier people. So one key message from the book is there there is no quick fix, right? Any fix that we have creates create some other kind of political problem. I think I use the analogy a number of times of the toothpaste tube, right? If you try and squeeze down politics in one place, it ends up popping up somewhere else. And if you've got the lid off the toothpaste, it just spurts out at the end in a stream of politics that you don't want. So you have to accept that even something really, really clever where we're all voting on apps doesn't doesn't resolve our problems that we, we still disagree on things and arrow's theorem and condorcet's paradox are still true because they're mathematically true regardless of how we design a system so the irony if you want to get to phil's solutions if you want to get clearer solutions to these kind of chaotic situations where a beats b and b beats c and we go round and round and round is you could reduce the number of options that people have or you could force people to make choices or you could have political parties and that's what parties are do in power right? this is the way the social scientists think about it political parties exist to resolve this problem they have lots of representatives who might spiral around indefinitely unless they're all forced by party line whip to do something so you could think of them as chaos cages right they prevent the chaos from spreading the problem is if the party can't control itself, right? So that's what we saw in 2019, is a weak party. A strong party that could have enforced discipline would have resolved the chaos problem. Now, it might create other problems, right? Because politics is never over. Now, it might create the sort of 20, December 2019 problem that you get polarisation and you get kind of winner-takes-all. But party-line discipline, even including potentially Boris Johnson throwing a bunch of people out of the Conservative Party did at least prevent the chaos. So you can see that trade-off. Yeah, my concern here is that the party model that you've just described is inherently analogue as a way of doing politics. And this came up a little bit in the conversation I had with Tim Bale, uh, that this sense that you you sort of sign up to be part of that club and you get certain benefits from being you know in the in the labor appreciation society or the conservative appreciation society uh, um but ultimately you're expected to slightly submerge your individual preference to the party line and waste a little bit and then the leaders will make those decisions for you and in the digital age, and we haven't really talked about technology in this context, but the digital age that, you know, in the world of sort of collectivism and virtue signaling yeah. online, for want of a better term, that the party is just, that's just not giving people what they want. And they, they just won't accept yeah. that from a party. They want, they want what they want and they want it now. And they yeah. want it from someone like Donald Trump. So I, so I think you're right that, that this is hard. So party discipline is harder to enforce. It's also harder to enforce, by the way, because churches for the right, and unions for the left are less strong, and they used to keep members in line as well, right? So if members don't want to be in line and they want to go on Twitter, even 
representative members, right? So, like, I don't want to be the person who tries to control Lee Anderson and stop him from saying what he wants to say, or party members also don't want to toe the line, then you've got a bunch of options, right? You can either go the kind of full Trump model where it's a kind of telling it like it is as a policy. But even then, it seems hard, and Trump found it hard, to assemble a really large coalition that's above 50% to keep you there. You could go for chaos. Right? You could just, and I think, honestly, that's where we'll end up. I talk a little bit in the book about the implications of, it's a little bit artificial intelligence or a little bit just the way that we sort of computers algorithmically look at all of our preferences, right? So we could have, we could have individual level voting where we, where the computer algorithm through a bunch of questions perfectly figures out where we are on a complicated political compass and sort of votes for us. But the problem with that is that doesn't take away the chaos issue. And now we just have chaos, but at the speed of the microprocessor with computers sort of going back and forth. So anytime you aggregate this, right, you say, okay, here's my very complicated individual set of preferences that are unique to me. And that's true for other people. Those preferences are probably going to be quite individual, disorganized, not well-structured, right? Because I'm a perfect individual who doesn't fall along these structures because I'm so unique. And the problem with that is that just means there's more points for chaos to creep in. So if we can array people's views on a single dimension, then you can get rid of some of the chaos problems. If computing and artificial intelligence and a Netflix world means that we can express our beautiful thousand flowers bloom set of preferences over all kinds of things, then I think we're back in the world of chaos. It seems to me then that part of the the challenge for both in, at an institutional level and at a leadership level is finding an appealing way to articulate the fundamental point about representative democracy, which is that you don't get what you want, that exactly. everyone there has to be a portion of dissatisfaction that you accept. And the reason you accept that is because you understand so fundamentally the investment we all have in the system itself holding together that you'll go, okay, I'll have a bit of what I want because not everyone gets everything they want. And again, going back to sort of where we started, that was easy in 1945 when the alternative was a massive smoldering ruin. Uh, and it was a bit sort of easier in the 1960s, 70s, 80s for a lot of people who looked at the Soviet Union and said, well, clearly that's not how we want to do this. And right now we have this awkward situation where there isn't, people aren't staring hard enough into the abyss or don't remember the abyss enough to think, no, no, I want, I'll take, I'll be patient and accept dissatisfaction for my democracy because I'm so fundamentally wedded to the idea that we are all part of one democratic enterprise. Yeah. People have to feel happy about constraining their preferences in some way or another. And that might be as it was in 1945, because you what the alternative is. And also, by the way, because the Labour Party is the party of the unions and the unions spend a lot of time talking to their members about what you should think about topic X, Y and Z. And the churches are spending a lot of time doing that for the Conservative Party and certainly for the Christian Democrats in, in Europe. The difficulty that we face today is that people don't necessarily want to face those restrictions on on their own views. I, I get that. So one way I talk a bit about the book, and it was something I was fundamentally sceptical about until I read more about it, is things like citizens' juries, ways in which people can come to understand that there are indeed trade-offs. They might not get everything they want and feel good about that. And I honestly think that social media can push us in two directions, right? So it could push us to polarise and double down on all of our beliefs, and indeed get lots of likes and retreats for doing that. 
but it also provides a, a bunch of new ways for people to be in communication with one another. And if that communication can be structured in a way where people have to come to some kind of agreement that, that they are all at least willing to tolerate, even if they're all not super happy with, then I think that can help shape people's preferences in ways that aren't chaotic and aren't polarizing. But no, the only way you get that is by basically reducing people's freedom to have these sort of fundamental preferences, right? You're reshaping people's preferences to be more like one another. I think this is what communitarians really want, right? They, they want people to sort of form a set of preferences collectively as a community that they all feel happy with that, that does constrain the individual differences. I mean, this is, an, uh, this is just a, sort of an uncomfortable fact for libertarians, isn't it? That ultimately civilization and society as something that can function and we can all feel, and this is your sort of where you get to the security paradox or, or trap that you talk about in, I think, the penultimate chapter of the book, uh, the sense that actually you know, the reason you know, we feel safe in our homes at night is because we have accepted a certain amount of coercive power that the state has over us and absolute liberty as an ideal very quickly rubs up against a problem that you can't all have it. People are generally required to surrender quite a lot of their liberty for the general benefit of existing in society together. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, Thomas Thomas Hobbes was was no liberal, and Thomas Hobbes is the philosopher we associate with this sort of desire to have a security state protect us from our own misbehaviour, and so that is what makes us safe and gives a sense of security and allows us to do things. I do think that people who view themselves as liberals should also have some sympathy for this approach because the one core thing about being a liberal, to my mind, is an acknowledgement that people will always fundamentally disagree. And they will all do different things. And that implies a world where probably there is some uncertainty out there, right? And you could contrast that to various forms of collectivism or populism or nationalism where you know, there's a group of the good guys and then there's some bad guys we have to follow. But the good guys all agree with one another. And I think liberals don't think like that. And I think in a way, the principle of Hobbes's Leviathan or being protected is also about that right we can't trust other people we need we need something to step in so if you're a libertarian where you you know you want to have your freedom cake and eat it right so you want to in other words have all your freedoms but not bear any of the costs of those freedoms or more likely if you're a libertarian not acknowledge the costs of those freedoms then i think dealing with things like the lockdown or dealing with restrictions on people's preferences uh which isn't to say restrictions on freedoms of speech but rather that you can't always get what you want in a political party that's hard for them but i think it should be easy for liberals i think liberals understand that people disagree fundamentally and that creates all kinds of problems that we have institutions to resolve and i suppose the symmetrical challenge to the left uh, the economic left uh, is is the one that you know it, it it probably is true that the more egalitarian you want to be in your economic management to you know, use the power of the states essentially to enforce solidarity, uh, the more you'll end up doing a kind of violence to some people's sense of agency and identity, which will then undermine your solidarity. And you end up with a sort of Soviet situation where nominally the ideology of the entire system is solidarity. And in practice, it's deeply venal, self-serving, selfish and individualistic because people are just trying to get by in a tyrannical system. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I talk a, quite a bit about this as well in the chapter on equality, because I think there is always a tension between completely equal outcomes and completely equal rights. That is 
a, a circle that's almost impossible to square, right? So if you want everybody to get exactly the same outcomes, you're going to have to place some kind of restriction on people, right? The restriction is presumably that some people either work harder or are better at things and so on, and they're not going to get their desserts. And you could enforce that at the point of a gun right you could throw everybody into collectivized farms right? that's the sort of stalinist response to this right but in that that case you've, you've more or less enslaved them but the other thing you could do is you could exhort them which stalin did with with stakhanovism and i talk a bit in the book about this but for those of you who've read animal farm you'll remember the horse boxer who's the who's the archetype of the stakhanovite who who wants to work for for the for solidarity for the system but it, it doesn't want to get disproportionate returns for doing so so you might find a stack of right you might find a miner who goes and digs out more bags of coal than anybody else but most citizens aren't natural stakhanovites and there's a in the equality chapter i talk a little bit about jerry cohen who was a political philosopher at oxford a few years ago deceased now and, and cohen argues that look you can have your cake and eat it you can have completely equal outcomes and give people completely equal freedoms to do what they want to do as long as everybody shares what he calls an egalitarian ethos so in other words if everybody believes that they should all get the same regardless of what they do you're gold and i agree like, that would work and if we all believed in that norm, and by the way, I believe in that norm in my family, right? I I don't serve myself more dinner because I earn more money than my children, right? So it obviously does work to some degree, but I think the limits of the egalitarian ethos are are very low, and they're certainly not large enough to to work at a national scale, right? And that brings because uh, we, we're running out of time, I think. But that that so that brings us back to, I mean, it's a been a recurrent theme in this conversation. You mentioned it's called exhortation. Uh, we started pretty much with with solidarity. This final question, really, of uh, what is the mechanism then? You know, if it's it's a bit of state, it can't just be state power because state institutions need to have legitimacy. Um, it can't just be uh, charismatic leadership uh, because th- that only lasts as long as the leader has is popular or is alive. Um, you need something that is going to instill in enough people some sense of collective enterprise equivalent to the one that you feel when serving out dinner to your family so that if you can't achieve a totally utopian egalitarian ethos you can achieve enough sense of common enterprise that you can start solving some of those really hard long-term problems that can't be solved when everyone's just pursuing their narrow individual self-interest what do those where are we where should we be looking for politics to as it were, to sort of manufacture, to engender that kind of ethos and solidarity. Okay, so I mentioned citizens' juries briefly earlier. I think the example of the citizens' assemblies in Ireland, which they used to try and resolve the long-standing Irish debate about legalising abortion, is a really effective way of doing this, right? There are very few issues more contentious, more red line than abortion but the way that they operated was by hosting lots and lots of citizens assemblies where they discussed all the ways in which abortion might be decriminalized or legalized in various ways including the length of term that someone could go to the restrictions on abortions after that date for life of the mother rape or incest and so on but we, we know that even with something as black or white as abortion there are some gradations in almost every political problem. But the important thing was getting people in a room who disagreed and asking them to see if there was something that they could collectively live with. As a citizen, I'm, I obviously find the idea of citizens' assemblies very appealing. Um, 
it's interesting when I've had this conversation with MPs, uh, quite often what they will say is we have a citizens assembly. It's called Parliament. Uh, and it's interesting that there is a, I imagine, a challenge there in terms of saying, uh, you know, if you, if the arg- part of the argument of the book is, you know, let's not just trash institutions because we don't like the way politics is working. Would it not make more sense to try and re-legitimise MPs and Parliament or at least not be unrealistic in thinking that existing politicians are going to say, yeah, you're right. We're rubbish at making these choices. Let's just give them, hand them over to the people. That would, that sort of sounds like Turkey's voting for Christmas a little bit. That seems to me a quite a significant obstacle. It is, it is a significant obstacle. I think it would be very dangerous to outsource all decision making to citizens, juries, and, and the general public. And indeed, it's most likely to occur when we're in two cases, right? One where politicians really, really can't come to any kind of conclusion on something and just give up and throw their hands up. I suppose that's one way you might do it. But another, and I think more important one in the Irish case, was where the citizenry themselves are split about this. And I think this is the important part, is that we do have, yes, a sort of citizens jury that is parliament. But that doesn't make individual people feel represented or listened to. And if the differences, which I think are fundamental and exist everywhere, are between people as well as between politicians, it seems like it might be worth experimenting with ways of helping people get come to terms with the fact that they disagree on things, that the people that they disagree with are good moral people just like them, but with different views on the matter, and figure out if they can hash out some kind of compromise in that. So I don't think politicians should want to deprive the general public of political life, because in part, that's what makes people feel unrepresented, makes people feel that politics is failing, because they just associate politics with politicians. But the key message of the book is politics is us. We are politics. And so if there are ways for us to come to terms with our disagreements, like low traffic neighborhoods in Oxford, which you do see in social media, people do debate back and forth, but still in a polarized way, because they're not asked to come to any agreed conclusion. So in other words, if we can structure it and ask people if they can find ways to talk to one another with a view to a collective agreement, rather than a kind of echo chamber back and forth throwing brickbats, I think that would improve political debate in this country and elsewhere. That's obviously very persuasive for those of us, again, who would want this to work. Still seems to me that then there's just a, there's a sort of a a prior step where you, they have to, you sort of have to win the argument with the politicians before they can then engage the the citizenry in, in the decision making. And I would say, broadly speaking, politicians are like the rest of us in that they are highly self-interested. And why wouldn't they be? You and I are. They are too. And so in part, they want to protect their own monopoly on decision making and i think the rather tragic history of decentralization and local government in this country suggests that politicians do not like giving up that control and so i don't think it's going to be in politicians self-interest to do this unless they literally can't resolve a problem and in part of course the eu referendum was an attempt to resolve a problem albeit a problem within the conservative party within the conservative party space i think it is conceivable that the way you break a logjam is to get back to your earlier point, Raf, about leadership and, and charisma and reframing debates, right? So there's no way that we can expect Westminster politicians to voluntarily give up their power to make decisions on a kind of material basis, because why would they? So it requires somebody to reframe national political debate in a way that brings the public in 
in a way that they really haven't been except for occasional referendums in this country. It comes back to this sense that you need a clearer and I think a more urgent understanding that what's at stake here is the entire system, the legitimacy of democratic politics. And we've been very complacent about that for seven decades or so. The fact that alternative systems often fail or and slide into tyranny or bankruptcy or both isn't in itself an argument that for democracy being a great system, it just happens, as Churchill famously said, to be you know, better than all the others that get tried from time to time. You need a critical mass of the existing politicians in the system to really look in the mirror and go, shit, we have really lost legitimacy very, very badly. And just denying other people, uh, the wrong people, a say in this, uh, because they're annoying and thick and wrong, is not going to solve that fundamental problem. And, it's, and uh, just a, a point to tack on to the end of that as well. I do think the really hard bit, but it also needs to be articulated from time to time, is it's not just that there are competing wills of different people, therefore no one will of the people. There are competing wills and ideas inside individuals. And you can agree, you can disagree with yourself on all sorts of things. Absolutely. So I fundamentally subscribe to the Richard Ashcroft view of politics, right? That I'm a million different people from one day to the next. And indeed, most research on surveys, political behavior, finds that a vast majority of people do not have consistent and coherent preferences in surveys from answer to answer. As somebody who runs surveys, I've seen this a lot. People pluck out ideas from the top of their head, often because of elite conversations. One nice thing about things like citizens' assemblies, or frankly, focus groups, is that people are not just sort of responding to a survey question or to ticking a box for voting. They're forced to articulate their preferences, listen to other people's preferences, respond to those preferences, and so forth. Now, our friends in Westminster do that all the time. And and in fact, they often treat each other quite nicely in Westminster. You can see that there is, it's not just animosity on, on either side, right? There's a lot of shared comity across politicians because they're used to having to do this. But I think the general public are less and less used to having to do this, in part, again, because of the decline of places for us for doing this, like trade unions, like the church, in a more atomized world without these kind of intermediating institutions... It's really, really tempting to just follow what you think your preferences are at that moment and not really test them and not get a good back and forth on what you fundamentally do think and where you're willing to let your smaller disagreements disintegrate in the in the hope of having a collective agreement. I think that's a very important point that and it. it combines both the sort of the demographic sorting that goes on in the real world i mentioned the fact that all basically all of my neighbors voted remain and to look a bit like me and do jobs a bit like mine uh, and that is as true for leavers in you know, another seaside town and you know, morecambe wherever as it is for remainers in brighton not least because our housing market has made it very, very hard for people to desort, right? It's hard to move from Morecambe to Brighton, and people don't move from Brighton to Morecambe, not least because they like their valuable property that they want to appreciate even more. The football terrace might be one of the few places that still exist as somewhere where you can go and you can care very, very passionately and agree in the most tribal way with the person standing next to you on one specific thing, which is that you want Brighton to beat United in the semi-final of the FA Cup, although that might have happened by the time this podcast goes out. Well, actually, that person standing next to you voted leave and you voted remain. And we really need more institutions, I would say, that can achieve that level of cross-cutting 
cultural connection. And and as a as a Crystal Palace fan, I can fundamentally say, right. Well, that's it. Thanks very much for joining us, Ben. That's the end of podcast. Yeah, and uh, look, uh, the book, frankly, <laughs> actually, now that I come to think about it, Palace, you really now. I mean, guys, sorry, carry on. You're saying. I can massively disagree with you on football, but agree with you on all kinds of political issues, right? So it cuts the other way. And one place I get, other than nextdoor.com, one place where I do my, my informal political science research is on Crystal Palace fan blogs. Because there are lots of disagreements about Brexit and the Conservative Party, but people just... And Patrick Vieira, I imagine. Yeah, about well, indeed, about Patrick Vieira and about Roy. But people do carry on debating. If you go to the BBS, which is the big bulletin board for, for Palace, I think that the Brexit forum must be several thousand pages long at this point, right? So it does provide a place for people to debate and debate in a... It is a public way, but it's less public than looking for likes and retreats on twitter and the funny thing about football is that the government totally misunderstands it and i think actually probably the labor party do as well if you think about the reaction of football fans to black lives matter and players kneeling excluding burnley fans for the moment i think football as a community and you can see this with the support for gary lineker has been much more diverse and much less socially conservative than politicians thought it was. And I think in part that's because players and fans alike have got used to the diversity of football, which is a really international business, with now a really international, sorry, really ethnically diverse group of fans in a way that certainly wasn't true in the 1990s. So football's not a bad place to to look at it if you want to look at how do normal people deal with questions of racism and homophobia and sexism and so forth. It, it may be the last institution that binds people together that we that we have left. And a final thought, what would alternative institutions then look like? Those being so fundamental to, to the argument in your book, where, where should we be looking to either rehabilitate or reconstruct those sorts of spaces for those people who don't want to freeze their asses off on a Saturday afternoon on a football ground watching their side lose. Yeah, I mean, I do think some online communities have this functionality. We even think things like Mumsnet have this, I think, role that they play. Funnily enough, so does Next Door, even though people shout at each other all the time, at least they feel that they have a voice. So yeah, I think it's fair to say that Facebook and Twitter and so on have kind of pillarized society to some degree. Although that said, I'm sure most of us who are in, in the kind of centrist dad community do follow a bunch of people on the left and on, on the right and so on. So it's not a complete echo chamber. What I would advocate actually is, is more effective local government. I think I lived in America for 13 years and America is a highly polarized place, but it is also a place where I think local communities are often a lot stronger than they are in the UK because people have the sense that they have more direct local responsibility for what goes on. That's partly because everything's so incredibly decentralized there. But other than a few metro mayors in this country, we really don't have a lot of local representation. So to, to return to my hometown of, of Oxford, I think the LTN issue has been so contentious here because it's been obvious to all and sundry that the council even with a vague consultation, didn't really want to listen to the public. And that's what's driven people mad more than anything else. And that's why we have Right Said Fred marching down Cowley Road. I'm glad you mentioned the American civic culture, because obviously American yeah. democracy is not looking in great shape at the moment. And the Republican ideal, uh, not the Republican Party, but the, the concept of the American constitutional republic looks pretty vulnerable. But it was, I mean, it was from the Tocqueville onwards, that was always the great advertisement for American societies, how actually how explicitly politicized it is, you know, and the idea that you, you know, with bumper yeah. stickers and people, they wear their, their politics 
on its themes in the way that here it's a bit like talking about God, you know, it's not something that's done. You'd much rather talk about the weather uh, and that ends up submerging a lot of politics in a way that also isn't especially healthy. Um, not that I'd advocate more right said Fred as a rule. I don't think that's the solution. No, but fair enough. They're, they're welcome to walk down the street as much as any of the rest of us. I think America is a more polarized society in lots of ways. It's a, it's a, it's a country five times the size in population and much more than that in terms of space. So perhaps that's not surprising. I do think that they have one tradition along with Tocqueville, which is the tradition of James Madison, where the, the idea, so Madison's famous argument that if men were angels, we wouldn't need the political institutions to constrain them. I, I think Americans do think about politics as being about competing institutions that block each other from doing things in a way that we don't think here and got us in a lot of trouble in the Brexit debate, right? So Americans get mad at the courts or they get mad at the legislature or they get mad at the president or they get mad at their own state house, but there are lots of different parties that can enter. And sometimes all of those veto players mean you get nothing done. See the American healthcare system. See the Lithuanian Polish Commonwealth of the 16th century, 15th century, I'm going to say, maybe a bit earlier. Indeed, yes. So the parliament where anybody could veto things and then people got bought off by the Russians to, to veto doing anything and then the country got petitioned, right? So that's that's a very bad situation. You don't wanna you don't wanna give everybody a veto about everything. But actually all of these vetoes stops a kind of forceful majoritarianism. Ultimately Donald Trump was a pretty distasteful figure who didn't make that many major changes to American domestic or foreign policy that have continued other than at the Mexican border. The one thing he achieved was a tax bill, a tax cut that most Republicans would have put through and that goosed the American economy and that which should have won in the election if he hadn't screwed up COVID. And that that was pretty much it. And that's because there are lots of countervailing institutions. Again, I think there's a basic American understanding that people disagree on stuff and it's better to allow different forces to combat each other rather than assume there is some kind of true but ultimately fake will of the people and that we all agree. That's a great note on which to finish, I think, because we are certainly out of time. And I'm now going to go off and uh, read some Brighton and Hove Albion fan blogs alongside the Federalist, alongside the Federalist papers. And I might I'll start copying and pasting one into the other. It's a classic combination. Ben Ansel, thank you so much for encouraging me to think that politics actually doesn't always fail, even though, as the title of your book could lead someone to believe that we're a bit doomed and so i would certainly urge people listening to this to recognize that the optimistic and positive inflection in ben's most excellent book and thank you for joining us on the podcast giving us so much of your time yeah and thank you so much for having me rath and i just encourage people who are worried that the book is gloomy to read the subtitle the five traps of the modern world and how to escape them because i think there are ways out of this and thank you so much for hosting me planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.